Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 32, The Earthquake Machine, 1896 to 1898. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tesla, The Life and Times. Last time, we learned more about Tesla's work on the wireless transmission of power and watched as his bromance with T.C. Martin imploded in spectacular fashion. This episode, we'll look at Tesla through to the end of 1898, as he continues to refine his work on wireless power, only to realize that the limits of what he can do from a Manhattan lab might be coming to an end. We'll also hear about Guillermo Marconi increasingly nipping at Tesla's heel, and consider how close Tesla might have come to laying waste to his entire neighborhood using an earthquake machine. But first, an update. It was my birthday recently. And when my wife asked what I wanted to do to celebrate, I suggested a trip to Buffalo, New York, just a few short hours' drive from our home here in Ontario, Canada. We hadn't been on any kind of cross-border trip since before the pandemic, and hadn't been on a trip without one or more kids in... mm, ten years? Needless to say, my wife was thrilled and deeply touched that with my birthday trip, I'd chosen to indulge her deep and abiding love of a trip to Target. I let her believe this was my rationale, of course. I've been married 11 years, I'm not a dummy. What she didn't know until we got to Buffalo was that my real reason for wanting to visit was to see the new Nikola Tesla statue they've erected there. Unfortunately, it was a cold, gray, miserable, smarch day when we were there, so the little parquet where the statue is didn't look nearly as green and lovely as some of the photos I've seen. However, I did get to see the statue and get some pictures taken with it. Check out the show notes for this episode at teslapodcast.com if you're interested in seeing those. Big shout out to Francis S. Listingy and family, who donated the statue. I believe Francis listens to the show, so hello, Francis. And congratulations to the sculptor, Mark de Graffenried. It is a wonderful statue and is, by far, the best likeness of Tesla I've ever seen of any statue of him anywhere. So, well done all. And before we get going, I wanted to say thanks to the folks who've taken the time since the last episode to leave a rating and review for the show on various platforms. On Apple Podcasts in the U.S., Out of My Gourd writes, Wonderful podcast. Well-researched and informative. Has somewhat of a narrative. Thanks, I think. Is comical at times. Again, thank you, I suppose. Uh, with a sarcastic overtone. I really like this guy, and if you love history, or believe Tesla is an understated genius, or like longer podcasts, you will too. Hopefully there will be a future podcast of the same excellence about some other little-known famous individual. Keep up the good work. Over on Facebook, David Himenko recommends the podcast, saying, One of the best podcasts by far that I've listened to. Really interesting. Also on Facebook, Roger Randolph wrote, Exceptional, concise information. Very articulate speaker, high-quality acoustics. I'm still at the beginning episodes, although as a long-time podcast listener, this series is a pleasure. The speaker is nothing more than a professional, and I look forward to my daily walks again. Thanks, Roger. Uh, Take an extra walk for me, would you? I could use more exercise. And Nathan Lazinski got in touch to say, Hi, Stephen. I just wanted to reach out and say that I love your podcast. I'm a field service engineer, and I work with variable frequency drives and servo motors every day. Needless to say, your podcast is right up my alley, and I've really enjoyed listening to it. Thanks, Nathan. Uh, I trust that if ever I misspeak regarding anything technical, you'll get in touch to correct me. Now then, 
Last time, I said this episode would go to 1899, but as I worked on it, it became clear trying to shoehorn in another year would just make this whole thing way too long. So we'll cover to the end of 1898 this time, and I wanted to tell you about a few of the notable historical events in 1898, which include, on January 13th, novelist Émile Zola's open letter to the President of the French Republic on the Dreyfus Affair, J'accuse, is published on the front page of the Paris daily newspaper Le Roar accusing the government of wrongfully imprisoning Alfred Dreyfus and of anti-Semitism. Just over a month later, on February 23rd, Emile Zola is himself imprisoned for writing J'accuse. On February 12th, Henry Linfield of Brighton, England, loses control of his automobile, rolls down a hill in London, hits a tree, and is killed. This makes him the world's first fatality from an automobile accident on a public highway. On February 15th, the USS Maine explodes and sinks in Havana Harbor, Cuba, for reasons never fully established, killing 266 men. The event precipitates the United States' declaration of war on Spain two months later. We'll get to that in a minute. On March 1st, Vladimir Lenin creates the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. On March 16th, in Melbourne, the representatives of five colonies adopt a constitution which will become the basis of the Commonwealth of Australia. On March 24th, Robert Allison of Port Carbon, Pennsylvania, becomes the first person to buy an American-built automobile when he buys a Winton automobile that has been advertised in Scientific American. On March 26th, the Sabi Game Reserve in South Africa is created and is the world's first officially designated game reserve. On April 5th, Annie Oakley promotes the service of women in combat situations with the United States military. On this day, she writes a letter to President McKinley, quote, offering the government the services of a company of 50 lady sharpshooters who would provide their own arms and ammunition should war break out with Spain. In the history of women in the military, there are records of female U.S. Revolutionary and Civil War soldiers who enlisted disguised as men. In fact, we'll talk about one in a minute. But Oakley's letter represents possibly the earliest campaign for women's full participation in combat service in the United States military. On April 22nd, the United States Navy begins a blockade of Cuban ports with the USS Nashville capturing a Spanish merchant ship. On April 23rd, a conference of senior Spanish Navy officers led by Spain's naval minister decides to send a squadron of ships to Cuba and to Puerto Rico. On April 25th, the United States declares war on Spain, and Congress announces that a state of war has existed since April 21st, later backdating it one more day to April 20th. On May 1st, the Battle of Manila happens. Commodore Dewey destroys the Spanish squadron in the first battle of the war, as well as the first battle in the Philippines campaign. On May 12th, the Puerto Rican campaign begins with the bombardment of San Juan. On May 28th, Secondo Pia takes the first photographs of the Shroud of Turin and discovers that the image on the Shroud itself appears to be a photographic negative. On June 7th, William Ramsey and Morris Travers discover neon at their laboratory at University College London, after extracting it from liquid nitrogen. On June 9th, the British government arranges a 99-year lease of Hong Kong from China. On June 12th, after more than 377 years of Spanish dominance, the Philippines declares independence from Spain amidst the clash between American and Spanish forces in and around the Philippines. On June 13th, the Yukon Territory is formed in Canada, with Dawson chosen as its capital. This is largely in reaction to the Klondike Gold Rush we talked about last episode. On June 19th, snack food processing giant Nabisco is founded in New Jersey. On June 21st, the United States captures Guam, making it the first U.S. overseas territory, and one it still holds today. 
On July 1st, the United States troops, including Buffalo soldiers and Theodore Roosevelt's Rough Riders, take a strategic position close to Santiago del Cuba from the Spanish in the Battle of San Juan Hill. On July 3rd, the United States Navy destroys the Spanish Navy's Caribbean squadron in the Battle of Santiago de Cuba. On the same day, American adventurer Joshua Slocum completes a three-year solo circumnavigation of the world. On July 7th, the United States formally annexes the Hawaiian Islands. On July 17th, troops under United States General William R. Shafter take the city of Santiago de Cuba from the Spanish. On July 25th, the United States invasion of Puerto Rico begins with a landing at Guanica Bay. On August 12th, hostilities end between American and Spanish forces in Cuba. On August 13th, by prior agreement, the Spanish commander surrenders the city of Manila to the United States in order to keep it out of the hands of Filipino rebels, ending hostilities between Spain and America in the Philippines. On August 28th, American pharmacist Caleb Bradham names his new soft drink Pepsi-Cola. On September 2nd, British and Egyptian troops led by Horatio Kitchener defeat Sudanese tribesmen led by Khalifa Abdullah al-Tashi, thus enabling British dominance in the Sudan. As it happens, I live in a city named for Horatio Kitchener, and having read a little bit more about the guy, maybe we should have picked somebody else to name our town after. On September 21st, Geert Adrian's Boomkart of Groningen in the Netherlands becomes the world's first validated supercentenarian. On October 5th, at the Battle of Sugar Point in northern Minnesota, Chippewa fighters defeat the 3rd U.S. Infantry in what is often referred to as, quote, the last Indian uprising in the United States. On November 10th, the Wilmington Insurrection of 1898 occurs, a coup d'etat led by white supremacists beginning in Wilmington, North Carolina. The event was a violent overthrow of a duly elected government, the only such successful incident in the history of the United States. The coup was the result of a group of the state's white Southern Democrats conspiring and leading a mob of 2,000 men to overthrow the legitimately elected local biracial government in Wilmington. They expelled opposition black and white political leaders from the city, destroyed the property and businesses of black citizens built up since the American Civil War, including the only black newspaper in the city, and killed between 60 and 300 people. The Wilmington coup is considered a turning point in post-Reconstruction North Carolina politics and was part of an era of more severe racial segregation and effective disenfranchisement of African Americans throughout the South. On December 9th, the first of the two Savo man-eaters is shot by John Henry Patterson. The second is killed three weeks later. The Savo man-eaters were a pair of man-eating male lions in the Savo region of Kenya, which were responsible for the deaths of construction workers on the Kenya-Uganda Railway between March and December 1898. The lion pair was said to have killed 135 people, but modern estimates place it at 35 total. Today, the Savo man-eaters are some of the most widely studied man-eating pantherine cats, given their unusual behavior of hunting humans as a pair. And if that doesn't send a cold shiver down your spine, ain't nothing gonna. The 1996 movie The Ghost and the Darkness portrays a somewhat fictionalized version of these events. The movie stars Michael Douglas, and Val Kilmer plays John Henry Patterson. On December 10th, the Treaty of Paris is signed, officially ending the Spanish-American War. Under the terms of the treaty, Spain relinquished all claim of sovereignty over Puerto Rico, islands in the West Indies, the island of Guam, and the Philippine Islands. The Philippines were essentially ceded to the protection of the United States in exchange for a $20 million payment from the U.S. to Spain, or just under $720 million today. 
The Treaty of Paris marked the end of the Spanish Empire and the beginning of the rise of the United States as a world power. On December 18th, Gaston de Chalou-Labat sets the first official land speed record in an automobile, averaging 63.15 kilometers an hour, uh, that's just over 39 miles an hour, over a distance of 1 kilometer, or 0.6 miles, in France. On December 26th, Marie and Pierre Curie announced the discovery of an element that they call radium. And on December 29th, the Moscow Art Theatre production of The Seagull by Anton Chekhov opens. Famous births in 1898 include, on January 20th, Tudor Owen, a Welsh-American actor best known for voicing the role of Towser in the 1961 Disney movie 101 Dalmatians, which has recently become my daughter's favorite movie. On February 2nd, William Billy Costello, an American voice actor best known as the original voice of Popeye, is born. On February 10th, Bertolt Brecht, German playwright and poet, is born. Coming of age during the Weimar Republic, he had his first successes as a playwright in Munich and moved to Berlin in 1924, where he wrote the Three Penny Opera. On February 11th, Leo Szilard, a Hungarian-German-American physicist and inventor, is born. He conceived the nuclear chain reaction in 1933, patented the idea of a nuclear fission reactor in 1934, and in late 1939 wrote the letter for Albert Einstein's signature that resulted in the creation of the Manhattan Project that built the atomic bomb. On February 14th, Fritz Zwicky, a Swiss physicist and astronomer, is born. Working most of his life at the California Institute of Technology, he made numerous important contributions in theoretical and observational astronomy, and in 1933 was the first to postulate the existence of unseen dark matter throughout the cosmos. On February 18th, Enzo Ferrari, Italian race car driver and automobile manufacturer, is born. On February 28th, Hugh O'Flaherty is born. An Irish Catholic priest and senior official of the Roman Curia, he was a significant figure in Catholic resistance to Nazism. During World War II, O'Flaherty was responsible for saving 6,500 Allied soldiers and Jews. His ability to evade the traps set for him by the Gestapo earned O'Flaherty the nickname the Scarlet Pimpernel of the Vatican. On May 3rd, Golda Meir, politician, teacher, and fourth Prime Minister of Israel, was born. Meir was elected Prime Minister on the 17th of March 1969 after serving as Labor Minister and Foreign Minister. She was the world's fourth woman to hold the office of Prime Minister, and the first in any Middle East country. Mayer was Prime Minister during the Yom Kippur War of 1973. Israel was caught off guard and suffered severe losses in the first days of the war, before recovering and defeating the invading armies. Public anger at the government caused Mayer's resignation the following year. I've mentioned my love of the blues before, and on May 5th, one of my all-time favorite blues players, Blind Willie McTell, was born. A player of Piedmont-style blues, McTell uniquely used a 12-string guitar, giving him a distinct sound. McTell was also an adept slide guitarist and performed in various musical styles, including blues, ragtime, religious music, and hokum. He first recorded in 1927 for Victor Records, with his final recording made by an Atlanta record store owner in 1956. Dying in 1959, McTell sadly didn't live to see the American folk music revival, in which many other bluesmen were rediscovered, but he was one of the few blues musicians of his generation who continued to actively play and record during the 1940s and 50s. On May 31st, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, an American Protestant clergyman and author best known for popularizing the concept of positive thinking, is born. He is best known through his best-selling book, The Power of Positive Thinking, which was published in 1952. On June 10th, 
Michel Hollard, a French engineer and member of the French wartime resistance, was born. His contribution to the war effort was recognized by the British in the awarding of a Distinguished Service Order for, quote, having reconnoitered a number of heavily guarded V-1 sites and reported on them. Hollard's efforts included 49 trips smuggling reports to a British attaché in Switzerland by foot across the mountainous border in all weather. He's been called, quote, the man who literally saved London. Thanks to Hollard's report and information from his agents, the V-1 launch sites in France were systematically bombed by the Royal Force between mid-December 1943 and the end of March 1944. V-1s caused the destruction of over 80,000 homes in Britain between June and September 1944, but British air raids destroyed nine V-1 sites, badly damaged 35, and partially damaged another 25 out of the 104 located in the north of France. On June 17th, Moritz Cornelius Escher, better known as M.C. Escher, was born. A Dutch graphic artist, Escher made mathematically inspired woodcuts, lithographs, and mesotints. His work features mathematical objects and operations, including impossible objects, explorations of infinity, reflection, symmetry, perspective, and tessellations. Despite wide popular interest, Escher was for most of his life neglected in the art world, even in his native Netherlands. He was 70 before a retrospective exhibition was held, In the late 20th century, he became more widely appreciated, and in the 21st century, he has been celebrated in exhibitions around the world. Henry Patch was also born on June 17, 1898. Patch was an English supercentenarian, briefly the oldest man in Europe, and was known as the last fighting Tommy, that is, the last surviving trench combat soldier of the First World War from any country. You want to hear something weird? The First World War ended on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 11-11-11. When Patch died in 2009, he was the third oldest man in the world, aged 111 years, one month, one week, and one day. 11-11-11. Make of that what you will. On July 2nd, Anthony Clement Nuts McAuliffe was born. McAuliffe earned fame as the acting commander of the 101st Airborne Division, defending Bastogne, Belgium, during the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. When the Nazi commander demanded the surrender of the encircled American forces, McAuliffe had a single word typed out at his reply. Nuts. I've always wondered what the German commander must have made of that reply. Was means nuts? On August 26th, Marguerite Peggy Guggenheim was born. An American art collector, bohemian, and socialite, Guggenheim was born into the wealthy New York City Guggenheim family. Her father Benjamin went down with the Titanic in 1912. Guggenheim collected art in Europe and America primarily between 1938 and 1946, buying works of Italian futurists and American modernists working in such genres as Cubism, Surrealism, and Abstract Expressionism. She discovered one of my favorite modern painters, Jackson Pollock. In 1949, she and her collection settled in Venice, where she lived and exhibited her collection for the rest of her life. The Peggy Guggenheim Collection is a modern art museum on the Grand Canal in Venice and is one of the most visited attractions in the city. On September 26th, George Gershwin is born. An American composer and pianist, Gershwin's compositions span popular, jazz, and classical genres. Amongst his best-known works are the orchestral compositions Rhapsody in Blue, 1924, and An American in Paris, 1928, the songs Swanee, 1919, and Fascinating Rhythm, 1924, the jazz standards Embraceable You, 1928, and I Got Rhythm, 1930, and the opera Porgy and Bess, 1935, which included the hit Summertime. 
On November 29th, Clive Staples, C.S. Lewis, was born. A British writer and Anglican lay theologian, he held academic positions in English literature at both Oxford and Cambridge. He wrote more than 30 books, which have been translated into more than 30 languages, and have sold millions of copies. Best known of these are The Chronicles of Narnia, but he's also noted for his other works of fiction, such as The Screwtape Letters, a personal favorite of mine, and The Space Trilogy, as well as for his non-fiction Christian apologetics, including Mere Christianity, Miracles, and The Problem of Pain. Lewis was a close friend of J.R.R. Tolkien. Both men served in the English faculty at Oxford University and were active in the informal Oxford literary group known as the Inklings. When I visited Oxford, I went to their old hangout, the Eagle and Child Pub, informally known as the Bird and Baby, and raised a pint to honor these two literary heroes of mine. And on December 30th, Claire Hutchett Bishop was born. She wrote one of my absolute favorite books when I was about six years old, The Five Chinese Brothers. It would doubtless be considered wildly politically incorrect these days, but I remember as a kid I couldn't get enough of the cleverness of the five identical brothers. Famous deaths in 1898 include, on January 14th, Charles Ludwig Dodgson dies. He is better remembered by his pen name, Lewis Carroll. An author, poet, and mathematician, his most notable works are Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and its sequel, Through the Looking Glass. Noted for his facility with wordplay, logic, and fantasy, his poems Jabberwocky and The Hunting of the Snark are some of the earliest examples in the genre of literary nonsense. On January 16th, Charles Pelham Villiers, a British lawyer and politician from the aristocratic Villiers family, dies. When he does finally pass away at the age of 96, he holds the record as the longest-serving member of Parliament in the British House of Commons. A radical and reformer first elected in 1835, Villiers sat in the House of Commons for 63 years. He also holds the distinction of being the oldest candidate to win a parliamentary seat when he was elected once again at the age of 93. Wow. Term limits, guys. Seriously. On July 8th, Soapy Smith, an American frontier con artist and gangster, dies. Born Jefferson Randolph Smith II, Soapy operated confidence schemes across the western United States and had a large hand in organized criminal operations in both Colorado and Alaska. Smith gained notoriety, and his nickname Soapy, through his prize soap racket, in which he would sell bars of soap with prize money hidden in some of the bar's packaging in order to increase sales. Kind of like a Wonka golden ticket thing. However, through sleight of hand, Soapy would ensure that only members of his gang purchased the prize soap. The success of his soap racket and other scams helped him finance three successive criminal empires in Denver and Creed, Colorado, and in Skagway, Alaska. He was killed in a shootout on Juno Wharf in Skagway on July 8, 1898. On July 30th, German statesman Otto von Bismarck dies. Bismarck was a conservative German statesman and diplomat who masterminded the unification of Germany in 1871 and served as the first chancellor of the German Empire until 1890, in which capacity he dominated European affairs. Bismarck provoked three short, decisive wars against Denmark, Austria, and France during this time, and with Prussian dominance accomplished by 1871, Bismarck successfully used a balance of power diplomacy to maintain Germany's position in a peaceful Europe. To historian Eric Hobsbawm, Bismarck, quote, remained undisputed world champion at the game of multilateral diplomatic chess for almost 20 years after 1871, and devoted himself exclusively and successfully to maintaining peace between the powers. 
and on September 5, 1898, Sarah Emma Edmonds dies. Edmonds was a Canadian-born woman who served as a man with the Union Army as well as as a nurse and spy during the American Civil War. Although recognized for her service by the United States government, some historians dispute the validity of some or all of what I'm about to tell you. At age 15, she fled home to escape an abusive father and an arranged marriage. She adopted the guise of Franklin Thompson and crossed into the United States, working as a door-to-door Bible salesman in Hartford, Connecticut. Her boss later claimed that she was the best salesman he had in 30 years of business. When the Civil War broke out, and inspired by a favorite childhood book, Fanny Campbell, the Female Pirate Captain, which told the story of Fanny Campbell and her adventures on a pirate ship during the American Revolution while dressed as a man, Sarah, disguised as a man, enlisted in Company F of the 2nd Michigan Infantry on May 25, 1861. Under General McClellan, she participated in the 1st and 2nd Battle of Bull Run, Antietam, the Peninsula Campaign, Vicksburg, and Fredericksburg, amongst others. From all later accounts of her fellow soldiers, even after her disguise was discovered, she was a fearless soldier and was active in every battle that her regiment faced. When a Union spy was discovered and executed in Richmond, Virginia, and her friend James Vesey was killed in an ambush, Sarah took advantage of the open position, as well as the opportunity to avenge Vesey's death, and became a spy for the Union. She traveled into enemy territory to gather information. She dyed her skin with silver nitrate and wore a wig to pass as a slave within Confederate territory. Once, she was posing as a black laundress working for the Confederates when a packet of official papers fell out of an officer's jacket. She handed the papers over to Union intelligence. On another occasion, she entered the Confederacy as an Irish peddler by the name of Bridget O'Shea, claiming she was selling apples and soap to the soldiers. She also worked as a detective under the name Charles Mayberry in Kentucky, uncovering a Confederate agent. In 1863, she contracted malaria. Fearing she would be discovered as a woman if she went to a military hospital, Sarah abandoned her post in the Army and checked herself into a private hospital. While she always intended to return to Army service, once she recovered, she saw posters listing her alias, Frank Thompson, as a deserter. So, she decided to serve as a female nurse under her real name at a Washington, D.C. hospital for wounded soldiers. In 1882, Edmonds began the process of clearing the charge of desertion from Thompson's record in order to receive a pension. She wrote to several members of her old company, asking for them to sign affidavits on her behalf, and in 1884, Congress declared that she was owed a pension of $12 a month. Thompson's charge of desertion was cleared by Congress in 1886, and she received a discharge certificate in 1887. In 1897, she became the second of only two women admitted to the Grand Army of the Republic, the Civil War Union Army's Veterans Association. She was a member of the George B. McClellan Post No. 9 in Houston, Texas. She died in Laporte, Texas, on September 5, 1898, from lingering complications of the malaria she had contracted in 1863. She was only 56 years old. She was first buried in the local cemetery, but was later laid to rest a second time in 1901 with full military honors. She's buried in the Grand Army of the Republic section of Washington Cemetery in Houston. While we talked around the Spanish-American War last episode, we need to take a closer look at the war and how it influenced Tesla and his work now that we've arrived in 1898. You might recall that we first talked about the Spanish-American War way back in Episode 8 on the Gilded Age. While the war comes smack dab in the middle of the Gilded Age, its roots go back as far as the 1880s, when imperialists and anti-imperialists in Congress clashed over what role the United States was to play on the world stage. 
While the thought of expanding trade opportunities for domestic products fueled the desire for a strengthened U.S. presence worldwide, the appeal of increasing the territorial advantage of the United States was equally important to imperialists. Eventually, the imperialists would win the argument, but only after leading the nation into war with Spain in 1898 over the issue of, of all things, Cuban independence. Revolts against Spanish rule had been occurring in Cuba for years, but in the late 1890s, U.S. public opinion was agitated by anti-Spanish propaganda and calls for war, led by newspaper publishers Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. You may recall that both Pulitzer and Hearst were pioneers of, quote, yellow journalism, a type of journalism that presented little or no legitimate well-researched news, and instead used eye-catching headlines, including some printed in garish yellow ink, hence the name, yellow journalism, to sell more newspapers. They would engage in exaggerations of news events, scandal-mongering, and sensationalism. In this case, they thought there would be a lot of benefit to a war between the United States and Spain, and they were determined to make it happen. I've hired you to help me start a war. It's a prestigious line of work, with a long and glorious tradition. While Pulitzer and Hearst were banging the drums for war, the business community across the United States, which was just recovering from the deep depression caused by the Panic of 1893, and which feared that a war would reverse the gains, lobbied hard against conflict. But, and you knew there had to be a but, on February 15, 1898, at 9.40 p.m., the U.S. Navy armored cruiser, USS Maine, exploded and sank while at anchor in Havana Harbor. U.S. President McKinley had sent the USS Maine to Havana to ensure the safety of American citizens and interests in Cuba, and to underscore the urgent need for reform. But, with the ship's destruction under mysterious circumstances, well, I bet you can guess what happens next. Most American leaders took the position that the cause of the explosion was unknown, but public attention was riveted by the deaths of 250 out of the 355 sailors aboard the Maine, and speculation ran wild. McKinley asked Congress to appropriate $50 million for defense, and Congress unanimously obliged. The U.S. Navy's investigation, made public six weeks after the explosion, concluded that the ship's powder magazines were ignited when an external explosion was set off under the ship's hull. Spain's investigation, not surprisingly, came to the opposite conclusion. The explosion originated within the ship. To this day, the cause of the explosion isn't definitively known, and other investigations over the last hundred-plus years have come to similarly contradictory conclusions. One in 1974, run by a U.S. Navy admiral, concluded that there was an internal explosion. Another commissioned in 1999 by National Geographic found the explosion could have been caused by a mine, but wasn't definitive. Whatever the cause, it didn't matter. Popular opinion in the U.S. fanned by the yellow press blamed Spain. The phrase, remember the Maine, to hell with Spain, became a rallying cry for action, and, as is so often the case with a rhyming slogan in American history, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, I like Ike, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, etc., etc., its power became irresistible. War started in April, was fought in both the Caribbean and the Pacific, and lasted ten weeks. As the American agitators for war expected, U.S. naval power proved decisive. The war ended later that year with the Treaty of Paris, negotiated on terms favorable to the U.S., giving it temporary control of Cuba, though the U.S. would essentially have its thumb on the scale of Cuban affairs until Castro's revolution in the 1950s and ceded ownership of Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippine Islands to the United States. With the loss of these possessions, the Spanish Empire, the very empire that had discovered the New World, came to an end. 
Fun fact, the main mast of the USS Maine is now a memorial in Arlington National Cemetery honoring those who died aboard. Tesla had been meeting with John Jacob Astor throughout the run-up to this war in his ongoing attempts to woo the financier to invest in his work. Astor, however, seemed more intent on war than scientific advancement. He had his yacht, Nurmahal, equipped with four machine guns, for instance. When told by Tesla of his plans for a teletomaton torpedo, Astor said, Come to Cuba with me, where you can demonstrate your work upon the insufferable scoundrels. Tesla, who had already avoided military service for the Austro-Hungarian Empire in his youth, thank you very much, declined. Astor's potential interest as an investor would have to wait. Astor, who got himself appointed a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Volunteers, and who would later receive a temporary promotion to colonel in recognition of his services, donated $75,000, just about $2.3 million today, to the U.S. Army to equip an artillery division for use in the Philippine theater of war. The colonel, and after the war everyone always called Astor Colonel, lent the Normahal to the Navy for use in battle. The hundred-yard-long, steam-driven, three-masted schooner made a formidable warship and was able to feed 65 crew at a single sitting. Colonel Astor sailed his battalion down to Cuba and watched Teddy Roosevelt in the Battle of San Juan Hill through a pair of field glasses. With only scientific journals able to adequately explain the complexity of his torpedo with any clarity, as we touched on last time, Tesla's boasts about the power of his teletomaton torpedo got a rough ride in the press, particularly in the pages of The Electrical Engineer, run by former bestie T.C. Martin. Like all inventors of destructive machines, read one editorial, Tesla claims that his devil automata will make the governments which are inclined to create international conflagrations hesitate. On this account, Nikola Tesla claims a right to be called a benefactor of humanity. The genius of destruction would seem to have then two aims. It creates evil, but mostly good. Through its help, the abolition of wars may no longer be a utopia of generous dreamers. A blessed era will open to the people, whose quarrels will be settled in view of the terror of the cataclysms promised by science. What contradictions of conception is the human mind subject to? Another such scathing review appeared in both Scientific American and the more popular Public Opinion. Quote, that the author of the multiphase system of transmission should, at this late date, be flooding the press with rhetorical bombast that recalls the wildest days of the Keeley motor mania is inconsistent and inexplicable to the last degree. The facts of Mr. Tesla's invention are few and simple as the fancies which have been woven around it are many and extravagant. The principles of the invention are not new, nor was Tesla the original discoverer. Despite this trash talk in the press, Tesla continued to promote his teletomaton for use as a naval weapon. He had offered his wireless transmitters to aid in the organizing of ship and troop movements, but was turned down by the Secretary of the Navy for fear, as Tesla reported a year later, that, quote, I might cause a calamity, as sparks are apt to fly anywhere in the neighborhood of such apparatus when it is at work. Tesla guaranteed he had overcome these defects, and even invited military personnel to his laboratory, such as U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Francis J. Higginson, chairman of the Lighthouse Board, to demonstrate the use of his wireless transmitters. But it was no use. Tesla was, perhaps, a victim of his own PR, if the Navy was worried about electrical discharges, given that all Tesla's public demonstrations and photographs of his lab focused heavily on lightning bolts shooting from various of his inventions. Instead of Tesla's wireless transmitters, during the war the Navy used hot air balloons connected to ships by telegraph lines to provide communication. Needless to say, such balloons made easy targets for the Spanish. 
Tesla also reached out to shipbuilders and even submarine builder John P. Holland to see if there was a way to piggyback his system onto their designs in hopes of selling them to the U.S. government. While Holland would later sell the Navy its first submersible in 1900, in 1898 he still faced a difficulty negotiating a deal. The Navy was obliged to decline Holland's offer to go into Santiago Harbor and destroy the Spanish warships as it smacked of privateering and was in violation of international law. Despite getting turned down by the Navy, wireless transmission was never far from Tesla's mind. By early 1895, Tesla had already arrived at a basic scheme for transmitting power around the world without wires. Since electromagnetic waves traveled in straight lines, and only a small amount of power carried by them was likely to reach the receiver, Tesla had decided to minimize the waves generated by his apparatus and maximize the ground current that passed between his transmitter and receiver. Tesla hypothesized that if he could generate a ground current at the resonant frequency of the Earth, then the power produced by his transmitter might easily travel to receivers located around the world. To help determine how currents propagated through the Earth and the atmosphere, Tesla began carrying a small receiver around Manhattan and connecting it to buildings, steel-framed buildings under construction which allowed for direct access to girders were best. He hoped to detect currents being broadcast from a transmitter in his Houston Street lab. These local tests, he reported, enabled me to reduce the determination of the effects produced at a distance to simple formulae or rules of electrodynamics. Having found these laws to be rigorously true in certain respects, further trials of this kind became unnecessary, and the dominating idea became to perfect a powerful transmitter. Though he felt he'd cracked the code on the Earth, Tesla was still puzzled by what happened in the atmosphere. If one rejected electromagnetic waves as the means by which the circuit was completed in the atmosphere, then what made the system work? Tesla was stuck. As he said in an August 1896 interview, Finally, after a long study, mostly experimental, of all the means and conditions, I have arrived at a few precise facts, enough elements involved in a practical demonstration, and here I am sticking, sticking since three years. And while Tesla may have been talking up the positives of his experiments in the press, he was more cagey about their dangers. In a rare admission of his experiment's lethal potential, Tesla recounted how, in June 1896, he made a mistake that almost cost him his life. I got a shock of about three and a half million volts from one of my machines, he told the reporter. The spark jumped three feet through the air and struck me, on the right shoulder. If my assistant had not turned off the current instantly, it might have been the end of me. As it was, I have to show for it a queer mark on my right breast where the current struck, and a burned heel in one of my socks where it left my body. Tesla was, of course, incredibly lucky here. But he also had a habit of long standing to thank for his survival. He would routinely place one hand in his pocket whenever possible while conducting experiments, just in case he was to be accidentally electrocuted. Electricity wants to find the shortest path through an object on its way to the ground, so by only ever having one hand out, Tesla ensured the shortest path was always across one arm and down his body to his feet and never across his chest from arm to arm, where the electricity might cross the heart, which is, after all, its own delicate electrical machine, and risk killing him. Throughout 1896, rather than developing a system employing ground currents, Tesla concentrated on improving his oscillator so that it could be used for wireless lighting and powering X-ray tubes. He also experimented with a host of circuit interrupters in order to adjust the frequency by which he could charge and discharge the capacitors in his system. We begin to see here Tesla's Achilles heel, his nature as an idealist inventor that W. Bernard Carlson talks about in his Tesla biography, and which we've discussed before. If Tesla couldn't have a whole, perfect system, he would rather have no system at all. 
Why develop your system and roll it out in parts or stages when the whole thing, the ideal, sat perfect and tantalizing in your imagination? And it was as part of his work on his oscillators that we get one of the best-known legends about Tesla's inventions, the earthquake machine. This story was recounted most famously, where else, in O'Neill's biography Prodigal Genius. O'Neill places the incident in 1896, though the first time the story was ever shared publicly was by Tesla in the February 1912 issue of The World Today, some 16 years after the fact, and edging into the era of Tesla's tall tales about himself and his accomplishments in his glory days. O'Neill recounts the event at some length, so if you'll indulge me, I'll read an extended section from this passage, edited down slightly for length, so that you can have the full account as well as some insight into how O'Neill writes about Tesla. And I quote, In 1896, while his fame was still on the ascendant, Tesla planned a nice quiet little vibration experiment in his Houston Street laboratory. Since he had moved into these quarters in 1895, the place had established a reputation for itself because of the peculiar noises and lights that emanated from it at all hours of the day and night. The quiet little vibration experiment produced an earthquake, a real earthquake in which people and buildings and everything in them got a more tremendous shaking than they did in any of the natural earthquakes that have visited the metropolis. In an area of a dozen square city blocks, occupied by hundreds of buildings housing tens of thousands of persons, there was a sudden roaring and shaking, shattering of panes of glass, breaking of steam, gas, and water pipes. Pandemonium reigned as small objects danced around rooms, plaster descended from walls and ceilings, and pieces of machinery weighing tons were moved from their bolted anchorages and shifted to awkward spots in factory lofts. It was all caused, quite unexpectedly, by a little piece of apparatus you could slip in your pocket, said Tesla. This engine may have had industrial possibilities, but Tesla was not interested in them. To him, it was just a convenient way of producing a high-frequency alternating current, constant in frequency and voltage, or mechanical vibrations, if used without the electrical parts. He operated the engine on compressed air, and also by steam, at 320 pounds, and also at 80 pounds pressure. It was in this highly variegated neighborhood that Tesla unexpectedly staged a spectacular demonstration of the properties of sustained powerful vibrations. The surrounding population knew about Tesla's laboratory, knew that it was a place where strange, magical, mysterious events took place, and where an equally strange man was doing fearful and wonderful things with that tremendously dangerous secret agent known as electricity. Tesla, they knew, was a man who was to be both venerated and feared, and they did a much better job of fearing than of venerating him. Just what experiment Tesla had in mind on this particular morning will never be known, He busied himself with preparations for it while his oscillator on the supporting iron pillar of the structure kept building up an ever higher frequency of vibrations. He noted that every now and then some heavy piece of apparatus would vibrate sharply, the floor under him would rumble for a second or two, that a window pane would sing audibly, and other similar transient events would all happen, all of which was quite familiar to him. These observations told him that his oscillator was tuning up nicely, and he probably wondered why he had not tried it firmly attached to a solid building support before. Things were not going so well in the neighborhood, however. Down in police headquarters in Mulberry Street, the cops were quite familiar with strange sounds and lights coming from the Tesla laboratory. They could hear clearly the sharp snapping of the lightnings created by his coils. If anything queer was happening in the neighborhood, they knew that Tesla was in back of it in some way or other. On this particular morning, the cops were surprised to feel the building rumbling under their feet. Chairs moved across floors with no one near them. Objects on the officers' desks danced about, and the desks themselves moved. It must be an earthquake. It grew stronger. 
Chunks of plaster fell from the ceiling. A flood of water ran down one of the stairs from a broken pipe. The windows started to vibrate with a shrill noise that grew more intense. Some of the windows shattered. That isn't an earthquake, shouted one of the officers. It's that blankety-blank Tesla. Uh, Editor's note, yes, he actually writes blankety-blank Tesla. Sorry, back to the story. Get up there quickly, he called to a squad of men, and stop him. Use force if you have to, but stop him. He'll wreck the city. The officers started on a run for the building around the corner. Pouring into the streets were many scores of people excitedly leaving nearby tenement and factory buildings, believing an earthquake had caused the smashing of windows, breaking of pipes, moving of furniture, and the strange vibrations. Without waiting for the slow pokey elevator, the cops rushed up the stairs, and as they did so, they felt the building vibrate even more strongly than did police headquarters. There was an impending sense of doom that the whole building would disintegrate, and their fears were not relieved by the sound of smashing glass and the queer roars and screams that came from the walls and floors. Could they reach Tesla's laboratory in time to stop him? Or would the building tumble down on their heads and everyone in it be buried in the ruins, and probably every building in the neighborhood? Maybe he was making the whole earth shake this way. Would this madman be destroying the world? It was destroyed once before by water. Maybe this time it would be destroyed by that agent of the devil that they call electricity. Just as the cops rushed into Tesla's laboratory to tackle, they knew not what, the vibrations stopped and they beheld a strange sight. They arrived just in time to see the tall, gaunt figure of the inventor swing a heavy sledgehammer and shatter the small iron contraption mounted on the post in the middle of the room. Pandemonium gave way to a deep, heavy silence. Tesla was the first to break the silence. Resting his sledgehammer against the pillar, he turned his tall, lean, coatless figure to the cops. He was always self-possessed, always a commanding presence, an effect that could in no way be attributed to his slender build, but seemed more to emanate from his eyes. Bowing from the waist in his courtly manner, he addressed the policemen, who were too out of breath to speak, and probably overawed into silence by their fantastic experience. Gentlemen, he said, I am sorry, but you are just a trifle too late to witness my experiment. I found it necessary to stop it suddenly and unexpectedly, and in an unusual way, just as you entered. If you will come around this evening, I will have another oscillator attached to this platform, and each of you can stand on it. You will, I am sure, find it a most interesting and pleasurable experience. Now you must leave, for I have many things to do. Good day, gentlemen. George Sheriff, Tesla's secretary, was standing nearby when Tesla so dramatically smashed his earthquake maker. Tesla never told the story beyond this point, and Mr. Sheriff declares he does not recall what the response of the cops was. Imagination must finish the finale to the story. End quote. Imagination. Indeed. Now, as I say, O'Neill's is the best-known account we have of this earthquake machine. But, as with the rest of his book, O'Neill cites no sources. In her book, Tesla, Man Out of Time, Cheney, as she so often does, cribs her version largely from O'Neill's recollection, but she has a source, a 1912 interview in The World Today. Unfortunately, this source doesn't have anything to do with an experiment conducted at Tesla's lab. In this interview, some 16 years after O'Neill says Tesla rocked Houston Street, Tesla recounted other experiments he had made with, quote, an oscillator no larger than an alarm clock. First, Tesla says he attached the oscillator to a steel link two feet long and two inches thick. For a long time, nothing happened, he says. But at last, the great steel link began to tremble, increased its trembling until it dilated and contracted like a beating heart, and finally broke. After this, Tesla says he sought out a half-built steel building, which he found being built in the Wall Street district. He clamped his oscillator to the ten-story bare steel framework of the building. In a few minutes, he told the reporter, I could feel the beam trembling. Gradually, the trembling increased in intensity and extended throughout the whole great mass of steel. Finally, the structure began to creak and weave, and the steel workers came to the ground panic-stricken, believing that there had been an earthquake. 
Rumors spread that the building was about to fall, and the police reserves were called out. Before anything serious happened, I took off the oscillator, put it in my pocket, and went away. But if I had kept on ten minutes more, I could have laid the building flat in the street, and with the same oscillator, I could drop Brooklyn Bridge into the East River in less than an hour. So he says he shook a building, but not his building. Cypher describes the incident at the lab this way. With George Sheriff present, Tesla placed one of his mechanical oscillators on the central support beam in the basement of the Houston Street building where his laboratory was located, and adjusted the frequency to the point where the beam began to hum. While he was attending to something else for a few moments, it attained such a crescendo of rhythm that it started to shake the building. Then it began shaking the earth near about, and other buildings with support beams and resonant frequencies. The fire department responded to an alarm frantically turned in. Four tons of machinery flew across the basement, and the only thing which saved the building from utter collapse was the quick action of Dr. Tesla in seizing a hammer and destroying his machine. However, Cypher cites as his source an interview with Tesla that appeared in the Brooklyn Eagle newspaper on July 11, 1935, 39 years after the fact. W. Bernard Carlson also references the earthquake machine in his biography. I was experimenting with vibrations, he quoted Tesla as saying, and I had one of my machines going, and I wanted to see if I could get it in tune with the vibration of the building. I put it up notch after notch. There was a peculiar cracking sound. I asked my assistants where did the sound come from. They did not know. I put the machine up a few more notches. There was a louder cracking sound. I knew I was approaching the vibration of the steel building. I pushed the machine a little higher. Suddenly all the heavy machinery in the place was flying around. I grabbed a hammer and broke the machine. The building would have been down about our ears in another few minutes. Outside in the street there was pandemonium. The police and ambulances arrived. I told my assistants to say nothing. We told the police it must have been an earthquake. That's all they ever knew about it. However, Carlson cites as his source an article from the New York World Telegram, which was also dated the 11th of July, 1935, just like the article from the Brooklyn Eagle, cited by Cypher. The identical dates for the two articles from different papers and by different reporters is probably evidence that Tesla was holding one of his press scrums, with reporters from multiple papers looking for sensational copy from the old inventor. Remember, in 1935, Tesla would have been 79 years old, and his notoriety had fallen off from his heyday of the late 1890s. Beyond these interviews, there is nowhere I can find Tesla himself describing causing an earthquake that is more contemporaneous to events than a decade and a half after the fact. Even in his own 1919 autobiography published in the Electrical Experimenter magazine, Tesla makes no mention at all of such an event. In fact, in that article, he goes from his lab fire in 1895 to packing up and heading to Colorado Springs in 1899 in under 250 words. So, where does that leave us on whether to believe that Tesla's earthquake machine was a thing or not? Well, first, I hope after reading that passage from O'Neill that I'm not the only one who thinks he was exaggerating. What are some indications that he was exaggerating? Well, the biggest one to my mind, beyond all of the contradictions, is where are the contemporary newspaper reports of an earthquake in Lower Manhattan? That is definitely news. There were lots of small and medium-sized newspapers in New York during this era, if the kind of pandemonium described by O'Neill had actually happened, surely one of them would have covered it. Now, I'm not discounting that Tesla conducted some kind of experiment or experiments with an oscillator that caused a disturbance in the neighborhood. And if, as O'Neill suggests, Tesla's lab was known by those living in the area for all kinds of strange goings-on, I don't doubt that if someone living a few buildings over felt a vibration of some kind that bothered them, then they would know who to blame. 
One of the cable companies has been doing work in our neighborhood off and on for the last six weeks, and every time they're down the block, I can hear the noise of their work and feel a low rumble or vibration from various areas of my house. And if a vibration was bothersome or concerning to some of Tesla's neighbors, I could definitely see someone calling the cops and the police showing up at Tesla's lab. Whether they arrived out of breath or witnessed Tesla smash the device with a sledgehammer... So... It's not the experiment that I doubt, it's a lot of the theatricality described by O'Neill, and by Tesla to a lesser degree, surrounding the event. Okay, you're saying by now, but Steve, what about an earthquake machine? Did Tesla have a doomsday weapon or not? No. And yes. Let me explain. Do I think he had a small device that nearly destroyed a building in a matter of minutes? I do not. Do I think he had a small device that could cause large structures to vibrate noticeably? Yes, I think he probably did. Could that device, if given sufficient time, bring down a building? That I don't know. But I am open to the possibility. Here's why. Resonance is a real thing. It is a well-known, well-documented phenomenon of all matter. Everything, to some degree or another, vibrates, or has the potential to vibrate. And when acted upon by outside forces, such as sound or wind or mechanical oscillation, objects can be made to vibrate at different frequencies. And sometimes, if the right conditions are met, those vibrations can be destructive. You've all heard of singers shattering wine glasses when they hit just the right note. That is the result of a destructive sympathetic vibration caused by sound. The note makes the glass or crystal of the wine goblet vibrate in such a way that the stress on the material causes it to fail. Shatter, in this case. So, if Tesla's oscillator could be tuned in such a way that it found just the right frequency to interplay with a building's natural resonant frequency, even with relatively low power, if given enough time, I'm open to the idea that it could do actual serious damage to something like a building. Or perhaps a bridge. Well, two bridges, actually. Because there is one very famous example of resonant vibrations destroying a major structure that is worth talking about. In 1940, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge in Washington State, which was at the time the world's third largest suspension bridge, was destroyed by resonant vibrations mere months after having been completed. Now, resonance and vibration are factored into the construction of things like bridges. Again, this kind of stress is a well-known physical phenomenon. For bridges, major sources of vibration include foot or vehicle traffic, and especially wind. Generally, such vibrations are more or less in harmony with the bridge's natural vibration, so it's no big deal. Unchecked, however, the vibration can increase drastically, sending destructive, resonant vibrations traveling through a bridge in the form of torsional waves. And this is exactly what happened to the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. What was so crazy about this incident, however, is how harmless the conditions seemed that led to the bridge's collapse. The Tacoma Narrows Bridge was designed to withstand winds of up to 120 miles an hour, or 193 kilometers an hour, the wind speeds you find in a Category 3 hurricane. Yet the bridge collapsed after being buffeted by a mere 40 mile an hour wind that's just 64 kilometers an hour. Why? Well, small periodic stimulus input into a mechanical system, if it's of just the right frequency and period, can lead to the buildup of resonant vibrations. As it turns out, the wind that day was at just the right speed and hit the bridge at just the right angle to set off a chain reaction of resonant vibrations. Think of it this way. Maybe you've seen, or even participated, in a double bounce on a trampoline. This is someone bouncing on a trampoline who is then joined by a second person who also begins bouncing on that trampoline. 
With one jumper, the trampoline can handle the impacts, the energy input, of a person as they bounce up and down. That's what it was designed for. And with the input of just one person jumping, there's really only so high that single person can bounce. The stretch and recoil of the trampoline surface can only provide so much energy from a single jumper's mass. Think of this single jumper scenario as the normal vibrational input the bridge was designed to handle. Day in, day out, no problem. If this first jumper is joined by a second jumper, however, well, all bets are off. Because if that second person times their jumps just right, they can amplify the bounce the first jumper gets every time they return to the surface of the trampoline. Do this over a few cycles, and that first jumper can get bounced dangerously high. Think of this second jumper as just the right conditions, like a 40 mile an hour wind hitting at just the right angle for just the right amount of time. And think of the second jumper's carefully timed bouncing as resonant vibrations, magnifying the bounce of the first jumper, growing more and more powerful with each cycle of jumps. Now imagine this second jumper bouncing our first jumper enough times that the first jumper gets bounced so high and out of control that they get bounced clear into the neighbor's yard. Well, that's what happened to the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. It was those resonant vibrations bouncing back and forth off one another and amplifying in just the right way that eventually grew so large and violent that they tore the bridge apart. There are lots of YouTube videos that show the actual newsreel footage of the bridge swinging in the wind, and I encourage you to go take a look. I'll include a link to one in this episode's show notes at teslapodcast.com. You will not believe how bonkers this thing looks, or how steel and concrete can wave in the wind like sheets hung to dry on a clothesline. Once you watch this, I think you will agree with me that the potential destructive power of a small input into a large structure cannot, if the conditions are right, be dismissed as the mere fantasy of an over-eager biographer. Which brings me to the second bridge that I wanted to talk about. One of my all-time favorite shows is Mythbusters, and one of my maker-geek heroes is Adam Savage. I'm also a big fan of one of his co-hosts, Carrie Byron, but for different reasons. If, like me, you're a fan of the show, you might remember a 2006 episode in which Jamie and Adam put this very myth of Tesla's earthquake machine to the test. Once again, a YouTube link to a clip from the show will be at teslapodcast.com. They tested a device very similar to Tesla's mechanical oscillator. In fact, if anything, it was a far more efficient mechanical oscillator than what Tesla had, and attached it to a bridge built in 1927. Now, they didn't really think it would work, until they began to feel the effects of mechanical resonance. Their oscillator, with a 6-pound weight attached moved 25 times a second, and was able to cause vibrations that Jamie and Adam felt 100 feet away down the deck of the bridge. Now, they ultimately called this myth busted, but I'm not so sure. The constraints of production meant they couldn't let this experiment run for more than one day. I'd like to see what would happen if they left the device to run for an extended period of time. So, I'm not saying I don't think Tesla shook a building with his oscillator. I'm just saying I don't think it happened in such a dramatic way as described by O'Neill or by Tesla. But I'm open to the possibility that such a small device could compromise a large structure, like a building or a bridge, given optimal conditions. Once again, here, Tesla didn't do himself or his device any favors in later years by making outlandish claims in the press. In that 1912 interview from The World Today that I mentioned earlier, Tesla boasted that just as he'd supposedly rattled a building, he could in the same way split the earth in two. Split it as a boy would split an apple and forever end the career of man, is the direct quote. Quote from Tesla or threat made by a James Bond villain? You decide.
In the interview, Tesla claimed Earth's vibrations have a periodicity of about 1 hour and 49 minutes. That is to say, Tesla explained, if I strike the Earth this instant, a wave of contraction goes through it that will come back in 1 hour and 49 minutes in the form of expansion. As a matter of fact, the Earth, like everything else, is in a constant state of vibration. It is constantly contracting and expanding. Now suppose that at the precise moment when it begins to contract, I explode a ton of dynamite. That accelerates the contraction, and in 1 hour and 49 minutes, there comes an equally accelerated wave of expansion. When the wave of expansion ebbs, suppose I explode another ton of dynamite, thus further increasing the wave of contraction. And suppose this performance be repeated time after time. Is there any doubt as to what would happen? There is no doubt in my mind. The Earth would be split in two. For the first time in man's history, he has the knowledge with which he may interfere with cosmic processes. When asked how long it might take to split the Earth, he said months or even years might be required. But in only a few weeks, he said, quote, I could set the Earth's crust into such a state of vibration that it would rise and fall hundreds of feet, throwing rivers out of their beds, wrecking buildings, and practically destroying civilization. He later tried to assuage any fears based on such claims, saying that the principle was certain, but that it would be impossible to obtain perfect mechanical resonance from the Earth. Whatever the actual status of the earthquake machine, in the later years of the 1890s, as part of his work in this field, Tesla applied for and received eight patents on different types of oscillators. Most of these generated electromagnetic currents of high frequency and high potential as part of his wireless system. His first application in the field of radio communication was made in 1897, his second, remote control, in 1898. Between 1896 and 1900, Tesla's stock of fundamental patents grew to 33, covering all essential areas of transmitting electrical energy wirelessly. As part of his overall scheme for a world wireless system that could transmit not just power but information, Tesla also began working on perfecting a system of telephotography. His interest began in 1893 at the Chicago World's Fair, where Alicia Gray displayed his teleautographic machine. But competition peaked in the summer of 1896 when Edison announced his plans to market an autographic telegraph. All you will have to do is hand your copy to the operator, say, in New York, said Edison. The cover will be shut down and presto. The wires will transmit it letter for letter to the machine at the other end in Buffalo. The wires will transmit 20 square inches of copy a minute and will carry sketches and pictures as well. So what Edison and Tesla were after was a kind of scanner fax machine, though Edison envisioned the data sent over wires while Tesla planned on sending it through the air. A May 1899 article states that Tesla was working on a visual telegraphy system using the light-sensitive element selenium, which puts Tesla four years ahead of the work done by Dr. Arthur Korn, an electrical engineer from the University of Munich. In 1904, Korn successfully transmitted over wires photographs from Munich to Nuremberg. Korn was one of the pioneers not only of the fax machine, but of amplification tube technology later used in televisions. He used high-frequency current supplied from a Tesla transformer to power the tubes and produce flashes many thousands of times per second, giving the illusion of a moving television image. While Tesla only dabbled in telephotography, by 1897 he had amassed all of the essential patents for generating, modulating, storing, transmitting, and receiving wireless impulses. In a letter to his lawyer, Tesla wrote, I forward here Mr. Marconi's patent, which was just allowed. I notice that the signals have been described as being due to Hertzian waves, which is not the case. In other words, the patent describes something entirely different than what actually takes place. How far does this affect the validity of the patent? Clearly, Tesla already suspected that Marconi was pirating his equipment. 
Tesla, ever the idealist inventor, as we've discussed, even made a veiled criticism of Marconi's use of the more primitive Hertzian apparatus in the text of his first patent specifically for wireless transmission, number 649621, filed on September 2nd, 1897. It is to be noted, wrote Tesla, that the phenomenon here involved in the transmission of electrical energy is one of true conduction, and is not to be confounded with the phenomenon of electrical radiation, which have heretofore been observed and which from the very nature and mode of propagation would render practically impossible the transmission of any appreciable amount of energy to such distance as are of practical importance. And speaking of Marconi, the young man was over in England, working with Lloyds of London on ship-to-shore experiments, using a trial-and-error method that Tesla would have disapproved of, just as he disapproved of the trial-and-error methods employed in Edison's labs. In July 1896, in experiments conducted alongside Welsh electrical pioneer and inventor William Preece, Marconi successfully transmitted messages through walls and over distances of seven or eight miles. In December, Marconi applied for a patent, which Preece felt was very strong, although he knew Marconi had been anticipated by Lodge and Tesla. The patent was not original, and it didn't put forth any new principles. Nevertheless, Marconi was definitely making real-world progress, while Tesla's work was largely theoretical and limited mainly to refining apparatus in his laboratory. It was Preece's own work in his study of earth currents and induction effects generated from normal telegraphic lines in the 1880s and 1890s that led him to realize the strength of Tesla's system. Marconi at that stage had no such understanding, but rather borrowed elements of Hertz's apparatus, elements of Oliver Lodge's system, with whom, it's important to note, Marconi was already involved in a patent dispute, and of Tesla's advances, because he knew that they worked. Again, William Preece understood all this, but he could also see that Marconi was making real-world advances while Hertz, Lodge, and Tesla basically stood still. But it was after Marconi rejected Preece's suggestion that they request formal permission to use Tesla's apparatus that the Englishman faced a conflict. Was he okay aiding and abetting patent theft in Marconi's drive to develop wireless communication? By August 1897, Preece made his decision, mailing off this terse note to Marconi, quote, I regret to say that I must stop all experiments and all action until I learn the conditions that are to determine the relations between your company and the British government departments who have encouraged and helped you so much. During the same time, Marconi was also being aided by H.M. Hosier, director of Lloyd's of London, who actually did approach Tesla about rigging up a wireless ship-to-shore messaging system in 1896 to report the international yacht race. But Tesla refused the offer, claiming that any public demonstration of his system on less than a worldwide basis would be confused with the amateurish efforts being made by other experimenters. Once again, Tesla's nature as an idealist inventor let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Perhaps, had he set up such a wireless system for the yacht race, Tesla's preeminence in the field would have gotten more notice. Instead, by waiting for some unknown date in the future when he would have an entire perfected global system to unveil, all he managed to do was let Marconi steal much of the credit. By 1897, Tesla had turned his mind back to the puzzle of the return circuit. How could he eliminate the wire connecting the transmitter and the receiver to create a true wireless power system? To solve this puzzle, Tesla went back to thinking about why Crookes and Geissler tubes produce light when connected to an electrical source. For Tesla, the secret to wireless transmission lay not with electromagnetic waves, i.e. radiation, passing through the atmosphere, but that an oscillating current could be conducted through a gas at low pressure, as Crookes and Geissler had done with their vacuum tubes. In his Houston Street laboratory, Tesla erected a 50-foot glass pipe between his transmitter and receiver. Using a vacuum pump, Tesla lowered the pressure to 120 to 150 millimeters of mercury, 
the pressure of the atmosphere at an altitude of five miles, and discovered that he could create a return circuit from the receiver back to the transmitter. The transmission of electrical energy, declared Tesla in October 1898, is one of true conduction and is not to be confounded with the phenomenon of induction or of electrical radiation which have heretofore been observed and experimented with. If he could set up a return circuit in a nearly evacuated tube, Tesla now reasoned that he could then do the same at high altitudes where the air was thinner. In claiming electrical oscillations moved through the atmosphere via conduction rather than electromagnetic radiation, Tesla was again distancing himself from most other inventors and scientists who felt that Hertzian waves were a form of radiation moving through the ether. What really excited Tesla about this experiment, showing how oscillating currents could move through gases at low pressure, was that the process was so efficient. If the voltage and frequency were high enough and the atmospheric pressure low enough, a great deal of power could be transmitted. For Tesla, the discovery of these new properties of the atmosphere not only opened up the possibility of transmitting without wires energy in large amounts, but assured that it could be done so economically. Distance almost became a non-factor. Send energy a few miles or a few thousand miles. In Tesla's mind, it was all the same thing. As we'll see in upcoming episodes, Tesla's belief that distance was irrelevant factored heavily into how he interpreted the results of subsequent tests and the promises he made about the capabilities of his system. His initial idea was to have spiral coil transmitters aimed at receiver balloons with a large metallic surface. These balloons could be placed high in the atmosphere and allow currents to pass from the receiver back to the transmitter. That seemed inelegant, and probably pretty fragile as a system, so Tesla soon pivoted to a new idea. Crank up the power. These go to 11. Tesla came to believe that if he could generate millions of volts and locate his transmitters and receivers on mountaintops, he could do away with the need for the balloons. Within the confines of his Houston Street laboratory, Tesla was able to push the voltage of his transmitter up to 2.5 million volts and generate 16-foot sparks. Rather than do major demonstrations, Tesla chose this moment to conduct secret experiments that he would not reveal for nearly 20 years, not until 1915 when he was testifying in court about, of all things, whether or not Marconi was the pioneer of radio or whether he'd infringed Tesla's wireless patents as part of his achievements. According to Tesla, and we have only his word for this, in 1896 or early 1897, the inventor turned on his laboratory generator to produce continuous oscillations in this millions of volts range and took a cab to the Hudson River. There he caught a boat and ferried up the Hudson to West Point, New York, with a battery-operated receiver suitable for transportation. I did this two or three times, he told the courts in 1915, but there were no signals actually given. I simply got the note, but that was for me just the same. In other words... Tesla turned on his receiver and tuned it until it began picking up the oscillations emanating from his laboratory back at East Houston Street. That is, I think, a distance of about 30 miles, Tesla said. Checking on Google Maps, it actually looks to be more like 60. Again, we have only Tesla's word that these experiments were conducted how and when he says they were. But perhaps because of such experiments, Tesla finally had his complete vision for a world telegraphy system. His plan was to disturb the electrical capacity of the Earth with giant Tesla oscillators and thereby use Earth currents themselves as carrier waves for his transmitter. In an 1897 article in Scribner's, Tesla explained precisely how his world telegraphy system would operate. Suppose the whole Earth to be like a hollow rubber ball filled with water, and at one place I have a tube attached with a plunger. If I press upon the plunger, the water in the tube will be driven into the rubber ball, and as the water is practically incompressible, every part of the surface of the ball will be expanded. If I withdraw the plunger, the water follows it, and every part of the ball will contract. 
Now, if I pierce the surface of the ball several times and set tubes and plungers at every place, the plungers in these will vibrate up and down in answer to every movement which I may produce in the plunger of the first tube. Then the author of the article steps in to explain. Quote, the inventor thinks it possible that his machine, when perfected, may be set up, one in each great center of civilization, to flash the news of the day's or hour's history immediately to all other cities of the world, and stepping for a sentence out of the realms of the workaday world, he offers a prophecy that any communication we may have with other stars will certainly be by such a method. Consider that Tesla claimed all this when no one besides Marconi had yet to publicly demonstrate that wireless messages could be transmitted more than a few hundred feet and those were only simple Morse code. With the fundamental patents on wireless communication and remote control now in hand, Tesla had all the pieces he needed for his wireless system. It was time to experiment with the system on a bigger scale. Because while his experiments so far had been illuminating, pun very much intended, they had not revealed where to best locate his transmitter, or what voltages and what altitudes would affect the system. How could he create a transmitter that could broadcast power over the greatest distances? These were no longer questions he could answer in New York. The Houston Street Lab was no longer big enough for his ambitions. It was too cramped, too vulnerable to fires, and too vulnerable to potential spies. Unbeknownst to nearly everyone, Tesla had already scouted a site for a full-sized experimental station. George Sheriff, Tesla's loyal personal secretary, tried to dissuade his boss from leaving New York, urging him to work instead on making any one of his recent inventions into a practical, marketable device to yield an immediate return. But there was no talking Tesla out of his plan. Go west, young man, was the famous refrain, and Tesla intended to do just that. There was one problem, however. Money. As usual. Tesla's new plans would require enormous investment, and Tesla was beginning to struggle in putting together a bankroll. In June 1897, it was reported that Westinghouse paid $216,000 for Tesla's patents, or $7.7 million in today's money. As Tesla and his partners, Brown and Peck, were receiving yearly checks of $15,000, about $580,000 today, split between the three of them, plus an initial down payment of $70,000, or $2.5 million today. This works out to about a quarter of a million dollars for a 10-year period, or just under $9 million today. Which is a lot, even divided three ways, but still not enough to get Tesla's proposed system off the ground. For his part, George Westinghouse made it clear that his company would not be a source of funds beyond the former signed agreement. But because Tesla had altered his deal with Westinghouse and gave up so much of his royalties a few years earlier to keep the Westinghouse company afloat, even the seemingly impressive sums Tesla was receiving annually were still millions of dollars less than what he would otherwise have been owed. And with the armistice that ended the War of the Currents, which was talked about last episode, now that GE was able to use Tesla's patents via their deal with Westinghouse, it meant that GE's numerous subsidiaries would be benefiting from Tesla's invention without the inventor seeing an extra dime. If he was to get his experimental station off the ground, what Tesla needed was a backer. What's that? Someone with money who's stupid. And as it happened, John Jacob Astor, the colonel, was now back from the war. So Tesla thought, toward the end of 1898, that he ought to drop by and pay the colonel a little Christmas visit. Next time, we'll watch Tesla woo John Jacob Astor to get the money he needs for his experimental station. And then we'll follow Tesla west to Colorado Springs, where he would spend much of 1899 working out just what his system of wireless power was really capable of. Mm. 
Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy it too, or share a link on the show on your social media. Past episodes, as well as show notes for this episode, can be found at our website, www.teslapodcast.com. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz.